Today we'll be reading from Genesis 3, verse 8 to 19. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Before we keep going in the series, I think it's important to emphasize something about this whole series about the gospel at work. Um, when we talk about work, when we take a, a biblical perspective on it, when we talk about the implications of the gospel for our work, we're not just talking about paid work. Uh, like 90% of what we're talking about in this series applies to all the various kinds of work we do. Uh, work around the house, work you do as part of being in the church, even things like raising children, going to school, preparing meals. All of these things are what the Bible's talking about when it talks about work. So even if you're not an employee, or if that's a small part of the work you do, all of this stuff is still relevant. And because obviously, as Matt talked about last week, with what work looked like before the fall, Adam and Eve were not employees of a job, but they were still working. God himself began as um, the worker in creation and was not an employee. So this applies to everybody, whether you're spending a lot of time in a job or not. Now, before we get into today's message, let's take a moment to pray for our time this morning. Father God, you are the maker and sustainer of us and of the world around us. We spend so much of our lives at work, whether in a job or elsewhere in our lives, but that's so often a part of our life that feels disconnected from what we do here on Sundays, 
or even disconnected from reading the Bible and praying in, on a weekday morning. We want you to be Lord over our whole lives. So would you use this message, would you use this whole series to help us connect our faith with our work so that we'd be whole people following you with our whole lives. And as the psalmist said, may the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So last week, Matt preached the first message in what's going to be a six-message series on the gospel at work, and we saw how work was meant to be. Critically, work was part of the world, part of creation from the very beginning. It was part of the world that God called very good when he finished creation. And more than that, we're introduced to God as the first worker in the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God made. So the, the very first verb in the Bible is related to God working. And we see him throughout Genesis 1 and 2 as a master artist, as a craftsman, as a builder, as a gardener. And then a little later, in that first chapter of the Bible, God creates man and woman in his image and says, essentially, continue the good work that I've started using the raw materials that I've given you. Matt talked about what's called the cultural mandate. In Genesis 1.28, it says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then again in Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That word dominion there in the cultural mandate is kind of tricky for us because it has a negative connotation from the way humanity has done the cultural mandate badly over a lot of our history, and more on that today. But I think it is helpful to note that dominion in English comes from the Latin domus, which means house. So one way we can take the command is something like take care of and exercise like benevolent authority over this home that I've given you on earth, in this garden, and beyond. Or continue my good creative work and make a good civilization, make a home for all of humanity from this thing that I've gave you. So dominion even was intended to be this benevolent, positive use of authority for creation and for the good of creation and humanity from the very beginning. Of course, Genesis wasn't written in Latin, so that's not exactly what's there, but the Hebrew has similar connotations to that. So in the first chapters of the Bible, we see that work is a part of God's good creation. And we see that work has dignity and purpose. And we see that when we work, we're following after the example of God himself, who was the first worker, and we're expressing the image of God in us as we work. Now, that was like the two-minute overview of what Matt covered really well in depth last week in a half hour. So if you missed last week's message, I'd encourage you to go back and check that out on our YouTube or our podcast as a foundation for the whole rest of the series. So we're picking up the story in Genesis 3. And even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you have a sense that it didn't continue like it started. Yes, we kind of know viscerally that something broke with work. And it's not exactly what I described a moment ago as I recapped last week's message. In Genesis 3, 
that good creation that God made and work in particular got cursed. Theologians call this catastrophic event the fall. And we're going to use the, the term the fall and, and the curse throughout the, the rest of this message. And today we're going to focus in on the fall and its consequences for our work. So basically, Matt got to cover the good news last week, and I get the bad news today. <laughs> My prayer, though, is that as we look at the fall and what it means for our work and how we live as people following Jesus and doing work in a fallen world, that we can actually find some encouraging and practical ways to do our work well, to be Christians in this fallen world, in wherever our work has us. And, and I think that's where we're going to end up. But first, we need to kind of make our way through what happened and how it went wrong and what that means. So first off, let's look at how things broke. So God places Adam and Eve in the garden gives them work to do there to continue his good work in creation, and gives them basically exactly one rule. This is in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, so I'll read it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And things are okay for a while. We, we don't really know how long because the early parts of Genesis are written in a Hebrew poetry style, so it's not like this moment-by-moment -moment account you'd give the detective about you know, just the facts of what happened. It's more poetic. So we don't know how long things were good, but as we come to Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible, things start falling apart. Satan, as the serpent, persuades Eve to eat of that tree, the, the only one they weren't supposed to eat from, and then she gets Adam in on it, and apparently without much persuasion required at all. <laughs> it's kind of like, here, try this thing. And, and Adam's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> and immediately the goodness of the garden is broken. Which brings us to the passage that Eunice read for us this morning. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 8. Adam and Eve are afraid of God for the first time ever and try to hide from him because they're naked, which works about as well as you can imagine hiding from God works. And I love how tender God is with them there. <laughs> Instead of like, dude, I see you. <laughs> You're not actually hiding from me. He, he comes to them with this, where are you? Like, he's acknowledging that the, the wholeness and connection in their relationship is broken. In Genesis 2, we have Adam and Eve as naked and unashamed, which I think is symbolic of their connection to each other, their connection to God, like nothing hiding in between. I don't think it's just about clothes. And then immediately when the fall happens in Genesis 3, they're looking around to cover themselves up, to hide. Like the relationship is broken. They feel shame and look for ways to cover themselves. And when God asks what happened, which we heard in the passage today, they respond with evasion and blame. Eve blames the serpent. Adam's response is, is classic. Uh, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, it's really your fault, God, because you gave me this woman that gave me the fruit, which also works about as well as you'd imagine. <laughs> so then God pronounces a curse on each of the three players, the serpent, Eve, and Adam in turn. A couple weeks ago on Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, Matt focused on the curse on the serpent and how that gets undone. And if you missed that sermon, that's another one that I'd encourage you to go back and check out because it's 
super encouraging to see how Christ on the cross undid that first curse. Today we're going to focus on the curse pronounced to Adam because that's the one directly related to work. And so let's hone in on that part in the passage. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 again. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In this curse we have the direct and immediate consequences of the fall, and notice how they directly relate back to that cultural mandate from Genesis 1. Cursed is the ground means the raw materials that God provided for humanity's good work is broken and distorted and even fighting against the work that we're trying to do. The relationship between humans and the rest of creation gets broken. Work becomes toil and pain. Futility comes into our work. Like, you notice weeding is a key part of the curse here, like thorns and thistles. And for me, and I, I know for a lot of other people, weeding is the most unsatisfying part of gardening. Because you get to the end of it, and all you've done is got things back to the way they were before the weeds. You haven't actually done anything to move along the growth of the vegetables or fruit that you're trying to get. You just kept them from dying. And you know, next week, those weeds are going to be back again. So weeding is kind of symbolic of the futility that we see in the curse. All you're doing is kind of pushing it back, and next week it's there again. You know, kind of holding the curse back, but not actually eliminating it. And then ultimately, at the end of the curse, humans will die, which was something that was not part of the garden before the fall. There, there wasn't death until this point. And I have no idea what that was like and how God intended that to work, but we see that death enters with that curse. Now, before we get into what this means for us, we need to acknowledge that for many people in the world, the toil, the pain, the futility is almost the sum total of their experience with work. If you're working 16 hours in a sweatshop, the luxury we have about thinking about meaning and purpose in our work and that sort of thing is just totally foreign. It's not on your radar. Fortunately, and through no merit of our own, it's just undeserved grace, like so many good things in our lives, that's not the situation that just about everybody who hears this message is in. We have toil and pain in our work, but it's more mixed. There's meaning, there's purpose, there's goodness, there's also things like weeding. And we'll talk a little bit later in this message about what to do for others in those broken situations. We'll talk in the sixth message in this series a lot about some of the situations we may find ourselves in. But I, th I think we also need to be careful to avoid a mistake that is increasingly common in our culture where well-intentioned, empathetic people go to, someone has it worse than me, so I can't talk about what's wrong here. Uh, which is a, a good intentioned attempt to put our own trouble in a larger perspective, but a lot of times it turns into someone has it worse than me, 
and therefore I can't talk about what's wrong here. And so we're treating a thing as good that God said wasn't. We're saying the fall isn't in play here because my work is better than somebody else's or my economic situation is better than somebody else's or whatever. And when we deny the reality of the fall in our own lives, we also deny the work that God has done and is doing and will do to undo the curse and to bring redemption there. So we need to keep our, <clears throat> our own problems in perspective, but we also need to be careful not to say, somebody else's problems are worse, therefore I don't have any, and this is how God meant it to be. Because as we're going to dig into today, it's not. Things are cursed, things are broken, and God has worked, is working, and is going to finish his work in that space. So we need, need to hold both of those things at the same time, that most of us don't have it the worst of anybody in the world, even maybe anybody we know, and also there's brokenness in our own lives and in our own work. All right, back to the, the curses in Genesis 3. There's one thing that's really beautiful, actually, in the curses, which I love. You wouldn't normally put those two things together, but there is something there. And that's the fact that every one of the curses includes a promise, a note of hope in it. They're not an end. So in the curse of the serpent, we see the promise that the Son of Man will ultimately crush the serpent's head, which Matt preached on on Good Friday. In the curse on Eve, there's pain in childbearing, and there's also a promise, you shall bring forth children. In the curse on Adam, there's pain and toil and futility, and there's also the phrase, you shall eat, three times. Like, in the middle of this curse, your work is still going to produce something. Your painful childbirth is still going to, in most cases, produce children, right? So God is saying that the, even in the middle of the fallen world, the curse isn't final or complete. He's still going to allow you to fulfill part of the cultural mandate in the middle of the cursed world is just going to be harder. It's, it's going to be more broken. But there's hope. And later in the Bible, there's ultimately the redemption of all these things and restoration of them. And that will be in a later message too. All right. The biblical term for what happened at the fall is sin, rebellion against God. And the curses are a poetic description of the personal and of cosmic consequences of sin entering into the world. Because of sin, Adam and Eve's original sin and our ongoing sin, the world is broken and distorted. Our relationships with God, with each other, are broken and distorted. This is the world in which we work. Now, before we look at the ways that the fall affects our work, the way sins affect our work, and what to do about it, we do need to preview the rest of the story to situate ourselves in this properly. We just celebrated Holy Week two weeks ago, so Good Friday, which I've mentioned several times. We remembered Jesus' death on the cross. On Easter, we celebrated Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus' death and resurrection means that the curse has lost its ultimate power. I'll say that again because it's really important. <laughs> the, the curse has lost its ultimate power. But until Jesus returns at the end of time... We're in this in-between, already but not yet kind of time. So sin and death have lost their ultimate power, but they haven't fully been defeated. We still live with them, but they don't get the last word. 
It's like the story of David and Goliath in uh, 1 Samuel 17. This came up in my read through the Bible in a year thing this week, and maybe some of you bumped into the same passage. So in, in 1 Samuel 17, the army of Israel is kind of lined up in the wilderness against the army of the Philistines. Um, but instead of the two armies just going to battle, a, a champion comes forward from the Philistine side, this giant named Goliath, and um, asks, you know, who will fight me? Like, one person against one person on behalf of both the armies. And if you can beat me, uh, all the Philistines will be your slaves. If we can beat you, well, vice versa. So who's willing to take on the one champion instead of just doing normal army-on-army army kind of battle? And this apparently goes on for several days, and nobody steps forward. And then the kind of small teenage future King David rolls in to just bring supplies to his brothers and is like, we're allowing this guy to, to taunt the Lord and the armies of the Lord? Like, who's going to step up? And finally, I guess I'll do it if nobody else will. And there's a, a funny part of this, if, if you haven't read it, it's worth reading, where they try to fit him up with the king's armor and sword and everything, and it's all too big for him, and it's not going to work. Um, so he gets rid of that, goes out there with his sling and his stones, just like he used to protect his sheep as a shepherd, and takes down Goliath with a stone to the forehead. At that point, the army of Israel had beat the army of the Philistines, and yet if you read the story, they chased down and finished beating the army of the Philistines for 20 miles on foot. So it's over, but it's not over, right? Um, same thing, C.S. Lewis makes a similar analogy with World War II. Like at D-Day, the war in Europe was decisively over, we can see in retrospect, and there were still weeks of fighting and thousands of deaths between D-Day and victory in Europe. And we're in that kind of in-between time with respect to the fall and the curse. On the cross and by his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death, and also we're in the middle of the rest of that process until he comes again and finishes it for all time. So as we discuss being Christians at work, we need to consider the reality of sin and how it affects our work because we're in that in-between. It's affected by it. And we're going to talk about three ways that sin affects our work, and I don't have an alliteration for this, sorry. <laughs> I really tried to take up the uh, alliteration with a Q challenge. Couldn't do it, yeah. Um, so we're going to depend on Matt for that one. Uh, <clears throat> sin affects our work in three ways. First, sin in us. Second, sin towards us. And third, sin around us. So in us, towards us or against us, and around us. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. Before we talk about the effects of other people's sin on us and our work, which is the easy one to go to, and the one that we are most consciously aware of and could probably even list um, occasions of, we have to reckon with the effects of our own sin. As Jesus put it in Matthew 7, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Or as uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote, reflecting on what's wrong with the world, he wrote, in one sense, and that's the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. So we need to start by acknowledging that sin is not something out there, but something in here. And what's in here has an effect on our experience of work and other people's experience of work around us. So let's examine the log in our own eye, as it were, which uh, we kind of miss how comical Jesus' story is, like picturing somebody with a log sticking out of their own eye saying, let me get that little thing for you. Uh, so we, we have to start there. And in the spirit of focusing in here, I'm going to literally do that. And I'm going to confess some ways my own sin negatively affects my work and other people's experience of work around me in the hope that you can recognize and relate to some of these things or it makes you think of other things in your own work. And I'm preaching this with one of my business partners in the room. Hi, Angie. Um, so if you doubt any of this, you can ask Angie and she can tell you <laughs> this, this is real. All right, first off, sometimes I'm lazy. I avoid doing tasks I know need to be done or I procrastinate on things that are important. Uh, yes, may not be you, but you know somebody. Sometimes I do the task that I need to do, finally get to it, but my laziness means I don't do it as well as I could or as thoroughly as I could because I, I don't want to work hard on it. Too much toil and futility. When this happens, this is sin against my coworkers. It makes things worse for them in their work. Um, it may be sin against my customers. Like I'm doing worse work for them that they're paying me for. It's sin against God himself because I'm wasting the talents and time and responsibility that he gave me when I'm lazy and I procrastinate and I don't do my best work. Sometimes I'm impatient. Others don't meet my expectations, whether reasonable expectations or not. And I sometimes behave unkindly with them. I'm short with them. I say things I may regret because of my impatience. And if patience or forbearance is a fruit of the Spirit, as Galatians 5 says, I'm also sinning against God in that by not letting His Spirit have reign in me. Sometimes I envy others' success and reputation. This is a sin in itself. You can see the Ten Commandments where envy and covetousness features prominently. But it can also lead to other sin behind it, like unkindness in my words about somebody else, maybe even gossiping or slandering somebody else if I'm not careful with it, um, which is really just trying to get somebody else to look down on this other person that's making me feel envious or insecure. Okay, this is awkward. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to keep going in the hopes that you can relate to some of this. So a few more things. Uh, sometimes I sin by showing partiality, treating one customer better than another or one colleague better than another for superficial reasons. Um, sometimes I'm just plain selfish, making decisions that favor my own interests over 
the good of someone else instead of trying to find ways to serve them or looking for mutually beneficial options. So as you can see, my own sin, my own personal participation in the fall makes work worse for me and for the people around me. Now, this, of course, by God's grace and power, isn't what I'm doing all the time. Right, Angie? Okay. Um, And I try to be quick to repent and seek forgiveness and make things right, just like you're almost certainly not doing all, all these things or whatever your things are all the time. But my own sin, your own sin, is a part of our story for what's wrong with my work. And just like Jesus and Chesterton both said, we have to start there. Our idealism about work is only a hobby unless we begin with What's in here? Now, the sin I just described in myself, some of which probably sounded familiar or made you think of other things that are your own flavor of this, is about what I do in my work. But there, there are two other ways that our own sin affects our own work. Um, and these are about the place of work in our hearts and in our minds. Work is meant to be a good thing that we do. It's part of our calling as people created in the image of God, a God who works. We mess things up when our work becomes an idol or becomes our identity. These are important enough that they each get their own sermon over the next two weeks. So Matt's going to spend a lot more time on work as idol and work as identity. Um, But I'm going to hit each one quickly here because they're part of this effect of the fall on our work. Work becomes an idol when our particular job or our career takes the place of God in our hearts, when it becomes the thing that we look to for ultimate meaning, ultimate satisfaction, uh, ultimate provision, that's the one that I think gets a lot of us. It's not that I think work is God and it's the most meaningful thing. I can acknowledge that God is more important, but practically, who do I think provides for me or what do I think provides for me? Well, might be my career. So just like God was satisfied with the work he did in creation, I mean, declared it very good, we're allowed to be satisfied in our work. We're allowed for it to be meaningful. He uses it to provide for our material needs. But what God doesn't like is when we think that the things he uses are more important than him. You say, uh, this job is the thing that provides for me versus... God uses this job to provide for me. And like I said, Matt's going to spend a whole sermon on this one. There's a lot there. Um, Work becomes our identity when our job or our profession starts to feel like the most important, most true thing about us. This one is so built into our culture, like our broader American, Western kind of culture. If you ask someone to tell you a little bit about themselves, their profession is going to be near the top of the list. And there is kind of a good thing about that because, as we said, work was built into creation from the beginning. But it's how we think about who we are in many cases. What do you do is one of the first questions you ask somebody because it feels like that's going to be the most important thing about them and how I understand them and who they are. Here's a quick diagnostic for both of these things, work as idol or work as identity. Um, Imagine that you suddenly lost not just your job, but your ability to do whatever it is that you do, your career. You could never do that anymore, however that happens. 
if that feels like I don't even know who I am anymore, or I don't know how I would survive, that maybe that work has taken the place of God in your life. While it's important, it's not the thing that defines who we are. It's not the thing that ultimately provides for us. The thing that is most true about us is that through Christ, we're adopted sons and daughters of the living God. That's the thing that's most true about us. So our gifts, our talents, our material resources, all those things, our security, our provision, those ultimately are gifts from God. They're not from ourselves. They're not from our work. Um, so come back the next couple of weeks for more about those because those are really important things about us and our work. Um, so we've seen several ways that our own sin affects our work and the work of the people around us. So that was the first one, sin in us. The second way sin affects our work is sin towards us or sin against us. An essential fact of life in a fallen world is that others sin against us. Work is where many of us spend more than half our waking hours, and there are other people involved. So we can expect that a lot of the experience of being sinned against as a human happens in the context of work. It's, it's not like work is this neutral place and then the sin happens over here. It's part of what we experience in work because we experience other people in work. And many of these things are the flip side of the sins I confessed a moment ago. Someone else's laziness makes extra work for you. It makes your work more stressful than it needs to be. You might be on the receiving end of impatience or unkind words from somebody else. You might be the subject of gossip at work because someone else is envious of your success or your talent. A few more examples you may have experienced. Someone lying about you to make themselves look better. Getting unjustly passed over for a promotion or raise because of some kind of favoritism. Being on the receiving end of an angry outburst. Being manipulated into doing tasks that you shouldn't have to do. I could go on on this one, but it's pretty easy to dwell on this one. It's easy to think of these, so um, we're not going to spend as much time there. I think that's the easiest of the three <laughs> because we're very aware when other people do things to us. So the third way sin affects our work is sin around us. We've talked about how work is directly affected by sin in us, by sin towards us. Work is affected by sin around us in this way. Broken people create, grow, and sustain broken systems and broken structures without necessarily sinning directly as they do it. Just broken humans build broken systems, and those have negative effects on other people, even if the person doing that work on the system in the act of doing it wasn't sinning. Much of my day job is helping leaders and organizations unwind and replace those broken systems, so I'm particularly familiar with this dynamic. And I'm going to share like, several examples really fast. Uh, I'm sure you can come up with a lot of others, and I'm going to ask you to do that in your gospel communities this week, because this one is often a blind spot for us. So there's, I think, I'm going to cover five different kind of categories of things. So first, systems and structures that treat humans like machines. God didn't make us as machines, but we find ourselves sometimes in mechanistic processes where there's no room for creativity or learning. Repetitive industrial work or warehouse work often has this dynamic of do the same thing over and over again, leaving aside most of your humanity, most of the image of God in you. The 
the leaders in that system may not have created it for that particular purpose, but an effect of that system is that it's dehumanizing. Second, systems and structures that impede flourishing outside of work, like hours for medical residents or legal associates often fall into this category. Unpredictable work schedules that preclude engaging in community, like you're always on call. Again, someone may not be directly sinning against you by having a system with on-call in it, but it has the effect of you can't flourish as a whole person because you never know when you're gonna get interrupted and pulled into something. Even long commutes are like this, where they take large sections of our life out of community, out of even work at its best, and we can spend cumulatively years of our lives in this kind of empty in-between commuting space. Nobody's sinning against you by making you commute in most cases, but it's a broken system that we've built in our broken world. Third, there are systems and structures that promote injustice, like incentive structures that keep employees from doing good for customers, and maybe even cause them to actively harm customers, but just because that's what they're allowed to do in the system. Sometimes if you try to cancel a subscription, you find yourself in the middle of one of these systems. <laughs> it's almost impossible to do. And it's not the, the call center employee like sinning against you by not letting you cancel the service you don't need anymore. They're stuck in the middle of a broken system. Sometimes it's hiring approaches that favor certain groups of people over others for reasons that have nothing to do with their ability to do the job or not. And well-intentioned people can be the leader of such a hiring process, not sinning but participating in a broken system. Uh, sometimes there are systems and structures that punish doing the right thing, like getting fired or passed over for promotion because you called out an ethics violation. Taking Sundays off for worship and giving up advancement as a result. Not fighting back when someone slanders you and having people believe them. And then finally, the sixth one, um, systems and structures that use our dominion our responsibility from the cultural mandate to destroy and abuse creation instead of caring for it. Sometimes that's not actively trying to destroy the good in creation, but participating in a system that has that effect. So that's sin around us. All right, a few applications, and then I'm gonna wrap it up. If work is broken by the fall, if work is affected by sin in us, towards us, and around us, what then should we do as Christians at work. Here are six quick applications. I encourage you to go into these further in your gospel community groups. Number one, calibrate your expectations. Don't try to make work do or be what it can't. Work can't save us, it can't save the world. It won't ever be perfect on this side of Jesus' return. Um, so we need to become kind of disillusioned so we don't become disillusioned, like get rid of our illusions about what work is so that we are not disillusioned later when we find out work can't be what our illusions said it could be. Um, so we set aside our illusions about work and what it should be like so that we're not paralyzed by that because we do need to engage well as Christians and acknowledging the fall is one way to do that. Second, we want to calibrate our expectations, but we also shouldn't be okay with it. By which I mean... We shouldn't avoid, or we shouldn't expect work to be like it was before the fall, but we should also lament that. 
Lament is a big part of prayer in the Bible, particularly the Psalms. Lament is crying out to God, why is it like this? How long until you make it right? Like, it's appropriate to lament the way sin affects your work, the way these broken systems affect your work. And let the pain of the fall in your work turn you towards God as the only one who can satisfy and make things right. Number three, be quick to repent. Because our own sin affects the work of other people and affects our work, we need to be quick to repent and to seek forgiveness, to try to repair what we break. This, by the way, is a big part of our witness to the world as Christians in the world. We want to be a people who are remarkably humble, remarkably quick to admit when we mess up, eager to do what's necessary to make it right. And we're able to do this because we know we're not saved by our own goodness. We're not saved by our own works, by our own perfection. We are fundamentally sinners saved by grace through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We didn't earn that. And this lets us be honest about our failings. <laughs> and when we're not, it's kind of like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. Like people around you usually know anyway. <laughs> and so being quick to admit it um, is better than trying to hide it and having people know that you've hurt them anyway. Right. Number four, be quick to forgive because other people will inevitably sin against us, we need to be quick to forgive them, quick to seek reconciliation. And sometimes this means being proactive and having a conversation with somebody else in your life before they've admitted that they've hurt you to say, this hurt me, this is the effect of this, and then being proactive to extend forgiveness and grace in that situation, and even to people who don't repent. This is a world filled with judgment. You know, people make a mistake, and there's there's not a lot of space for grace and redemption in our broader culture, but the gospel makes it possible for us because we, we know our own sin, we know the grace we've received, we can freely extend grace and forgiveness to other people. <laughs> it's not zero sum. We don't lose anything by extending grace. Except maybe sometimes pride and status, but those aren't ultimate meaningful things anyway. Uh, number five, we should recognize those broken systems and structures and work to fix those where we can. Uh, maybe directly yourself, sometimes partnering with organizations who specialize in fixing a particular kind of broken system or injustice in the world. Like, be aware of it and say, how can I participate in the redemptive work that God is doing on this? And then finally, trust the Lord to work in and through you even in a broken world, depend on the power of the Holy Spirit, recognize that wherever you go, God was there first, already working in this place, in the people who are there. And he may have a purpose for you to join in his work that he's already doing. And this is my far and away most frequent prayer in my own work is, God, what are you doing here? And there's a certain tone where that becomes lament or something. Like, what are you doing? But the, the way I mean it is, like, show me what you're already doing here so that I can participate in that. And so often that reveals to me, like, 
God shows me pain that other people are already experiencing, and when they sin against me where that's coming from and gives me more grace to respond to it. He shows me needs that I would otherwise miss because I'm concerned with my own productivity or status. So God, what are you doing here? Acknowledges he's already working and you might be able to be part of it as his hands and feet in the world. The fall isn't the end of the story. Jesus is redeeming all things, including work, and is making all things new, including work, and he will finish what he started. And we're going to go deep into the redemption of work in a few weeks, but as we talk about the fall, let's keep that in mind. The fall isn't the end of the story. Let's pray.